very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I'm Sean Richards, hosting today, joined by a face you will expect, Scott Richards, and our special guest, Ronnie Simone. Now, uh, Ronnie, of course, for those of you who aren't familiar, Mm -hmm. is one of our beloved tour guides in our, well, the time we had the honor to visit Israel. And of course, uh, being trained professionally in history mm-hmm. and in particular biblical history, uh, we wanted to take advantage of the opportunity that you have not only presented to us in coming out to tell us a little bit about what's going on, not only in the current events, but in the grand scope of events across the pond, as they say, or at least as some people say, <laughs> as well as to answer your questions about what is going on in Israel. So if you enjoy our Israel updates, that will be the topic of today's broadcast. If you have any questions pertaining to biblical history, current events in Israel, or just the Israeli nation and the events regarding Hamas and Islam as a whole, we'd be more than happy to field them here for you, as well as ask some questions that we've prepared on our own. But know that that Mm. is what we'll be setting aside for the next hour. If you'd like to send us those questions, know that you can do so through our usual venues. Questionsforhope at gmail.com is and remains our email address. If you'd like to remain anonymous, we will be able to receive your questions there. And if we don't get to your question right away, send it to us there. We'll be able to revisit it in an organized format later on. Note as well, we have a Facebook page. We are live streaming at CCF Tucson or Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. If you can join us there, subscribe, hit the notification bell. You'll be able to join us where we are live streaming every single weekday. However, if you are taking the all more justifiable position of avoiding social media, our website also has a streaming platform at calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Not to take up any more time than we have, uh, we want to make sure that our guest is given the opportunity to share everything that he'd like to. But before we do, we'd like to take some time as well to dedicate this to uh, the Lord in prayer. Dad, would you like to start us off? I would love to. Lord, we are so grateful for this opportunity to be able to have Ronnie here in the studio. And Lord, uh, as uh, we explore the issues that are going on surrounding Israel, our prayer is for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, Father, for the protection of the Jewish people. And Lord, we thank you for uh, what you say in Psalm 121, that he uh, keeps Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. Thank you, Father, uh, for this uh, amazing opportunity. We pray that you would uh, build us up and help us to have uh, a better and more thorough insider perspective on what's happening in the Middle East uh, than we've ever had before. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for giving us this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Amen. Right. So to start us off, um, we have some questions that we'd like to ask of Ronnie. Do you have any that you'd like to start with? Well, uh, first of all, Ronnie, uh, just a little bit of, uh, if you could share a little bit of your background with us. Uh, we've met, uh, you were our tour guide uh, when we went to Israel, but uh, your pathway to becoming a tour guide is kind of an interesting one. What were the twists and turns that... Uh, led you to be the man leading a bunch of confused <laughs> Americans around with a uh, puppet of Kermit the Frog. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the show, gentlemen. I'm glad to be here. And to answer your question, well, it just combines two things I always like to do, uh, teach and travel. If teachers were well paid in Israel, I guess that would be my first mission is to be a teacher and teach history. Uh, they're not paid that well, just like in America. So that was the reason for me to lead people across the country. It took me a while to understand how people are really interested in Israel. It was a shock for me, a pleasant one, 
knowing that people uh, do care about the country. And as an average Israeli, average Israelis don't know much about the evangelical world. They do not know how much support we do have from Americans, especially evangelical Americans, because when I grew up in Israel, a whole generation was oriented in a certain way that the whole world is against us. We have no friends on the globe. I can't imagine how you came to that conclusion. <laughs> well, no, but there was a deliberate um, idea. We are the generation of sons and daughters of Holocaust survivors. And the whole country was in this mode that the Jewish people that survived the Holocaust, we don't have any friends on the globe and we need to stick together and we need to dedicate ourselves for the best interest of the country and we need to make compromises for that and we have to stick together. It was a way that my generation was educated and it was a pleasant surprise to me growing up and kind of broaden my horizons and have a chance to meet with people like yourself, Pastor. That was um, a pleasant surprise to know that we are not alone. We do have a lot of support because most Israelis are not familiar with that issue. The Christian world wasn't always considered a friend. No, no, and, not at all. And no. when I grew up in Israel, it was something that, you know, just uh, we need to stay away. And today everything changes. And today people are more open. If you want to share Jesus with the Israeli person today, they'll be more than interested to engage in a conversation. In my time as a youth, that was out of the question. Mm. That was the defensive measures that the country took, deliberately educating a whole generation based on the horrors of the Holocaust. So that's where we come from. Things have changed, which is a good thing, and today people are much more open, and people do understand right, the support that we have, and people are not as ignorant as they used to be, which so, is a good thing, obviously. When you... Yeah, so um, you, you grew up in this environment, and uh, your parents uh, were in the Holocaust, were they? Yeah, yeah. they only met after the Holocaust, but yeah. uh, my dad uh, came from a town which used to be Romanian, now it's in the Ukraine, and my mother came from Transylvania. It used to be Hungary, and now it's part of Romania, and they met after the war was over. My dad lost part of his family. And on the way to go basically to Argentina, it's a long story, but uh, they traveled through Romania on the way to Italy to get on a boat. And basically they were stuck in the town that my mother lived in because of the Iron Curtain Ferry. That was early 46, mm. they divided the country into two. So my grandmother was able to leave. She was old enough to leave there, but my dad was 17. It wasn't the right age to go to the Romanian army. So they blocked his way to carry on. And he got mm -hmm. stuck basically in the community, in this city, and the local Jewish community was simply embracing them. So that's how they got to know each other. So they knew each other only after the war was over. Mm -hmm. I was born there, Romania. Yeah, you were yeah. born in Romania, uh -huh. and then your parents emigrated to Israel. They waited 11 years just to get a visas. Just wow. to leave Romania back then was almost impossible. Before the days of Ceausescu, right? He only came to power a little later on. It was almost impossible. So they waited for 11 years just to get a permit to live in Romania. Mm. And meanwhile, they had me. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was five years old when we moved to Israel. Wow, that, that must have uh, really been an amazing transition for you. Well, as a kid, I, I don't remember much. I heard stories all of my life. So my memory is kind of uh, maybe part truth and part, part history. I'm not even sure. But uh, we, we traveled in Romania later on. I was always curious, will I have any kind of sentiments for the country or the people? Uh, no, nothing. Which hmm. is like a foreign country to me. <laughs> yeah, I can't even speak the language anymore. Yeah, so uh, I've been there twice. So, so, so you're an Israeli, mm. Israeli now. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. with one hundred percent Israeli. Yeah. <laughs> you won't find a trace of Romanianity in me, if you can yeah. say that. So, so your family maybe, maybe good manners. Yeah, <laughs> people, people compliment me for that. <laughs> yeah. So you move with your family from Romania mm. to Israel, and then you, you grow up 
in Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, you entered the IDF, did you not? Like most Israelis, you know, from the minute you're born, when you're 18 years old, and you graduate from high school, you go to serve your country. Three years uh, for the boys and two years for the girls. That was the case back at the time. In my case, I stayed a little longer. Being an officer myself, I had to sign another year. And then as a reservist, you stay for as long as the country needs you. And, uh, yes, and, and what year did you enter into? 75. Uh, 75. I was 18, yeah. And then four full years. And then as a reservist, I volunteered until 2007. I was called for the last, I was 50, was called for the last time. Now I'm too old for that. So oh. if, if, <laughs> if, if they really call me now, we are in trouble. So, uh, so, so you had this background with the, the IDF. Uh, you mentioned to me at one point there was sort of a uh, career choice you have between the IDF and the Mossad. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> which well, is very interesting. <laughs> when, you are, when you serve uh, part of the things that you are going through, not even noticing, people watch you all the time. People try to scan to see about your quality, about your skills. And if the army wants you, they'll make you an offer to stay. It's not your choice. They may not have to stay, I decided not to stay. But like most, most Israeli youth, if, if you were kind of decent what you did, all right, and your commanding officer was pleased with you, uh, you got a phone call. And they asked you to come for an interview, and they tried to recruit you to different services to serve the country. And it all depends. It just you start a whole screening process. Mm. In my case, we started if we never completed it. But I'm not unique in that regard. Many, many Israeli kids will go through the same process. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you served uh, in the IDF uh, through all those years, through some pretty interesting junctures of uh, Well, my generation, history. basically, we missed the Yom Kippur War, 1973. Right. Uh, my experience was in Lebanon, right, in 82 and 2006. Right. Every generation has, has the war that they fought. And I have to tell you that the generation that fights this one, they are the best kids ever. Mm. The best of the best. We question their motivation. We question their zeal. They do a tremendous job. Yeah. And fight against in, in a terrible condition. We may speak about it a little later on, but uh, we always had this question when I was still holding my position, when there was an emergency and we need everybody. How many people are going to show up? Because the way that we are prepared, you have equipment like sleeping bags, ammunition, even rifles not 100% of the people on the list, because there's always some people that, that just want to want report. They are abroad, they are traveling, they have a medical condition, whatever. In this case, 120% of the people showed up. Mm. People left everything, including careers, you know what, in San Jose. Mm. And they went home because they want to serve the country. Mm. And we ended up with shortage of equipment. We just did not have enough, because we did not think that everybody is going to come fight for the country. People that were disconnected from the army for 15 years, they don't even know to use the new assault rifle that we have because it was introduced after they left the country. Huh. So they had to go to a period of at least a few weeks of training because they want to serve the country. So it was amazing to see how many people showed up. Uh -huh. So there was a shortage of everything, including food. We simply were not prepared for that amount of people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So well, thanks to the USFA, among other things, that we're able to equip everybody because we needed everybody. 300,000 people were mobilized. That's the figure which was published, so it's not a military secret. I don't have any access to those anymore. But that was a, it was a good sign. It yeah. was a good sign that everybody is there to serve the country. Yeah, and, and not to divert too much from, uh, you know, your background and uh, you're getting involved mm -hmm. as, in, as a historian and, and a tour guide and so on, uh, because I think those stories are fascinating as well. But uh, very interesting how there was uh, an incredible sea change because prior to the horrible events of October 7th, 
Israel seemed like a country almost hopelessly divided. Yeah, we had a very unpleasant year. <laughs> yeah. Would you like me to get into that a little bit? Well, yeah, if you could explain just the before and after. Yeah, I mean, well, I so wish, I wish. I'm not sure that we fully understand uh, the issue, but the issue was that we had too many election campaigns over the last three or four years. And the new government was sworn in, and that was exactly a year ago. And when you run for elections, you try to present a certain agenda to attract people to vote for you. And the issue was always the cost of living, and the issue was Iran, the issue was even Hamas. And then when the new government was sworn in, the first issue that surfaced on the table very aggressively is to try to change our parliamentary system, to try to change the balance of power. It's something that nobody really spoke about, and suddenly that became to be the most important issue. We were not prepared for that. So the Secretary of Justice, it was the 6th of January or the 10th of January, presented a plan very aggressively right in everybody's face. The judiciary are too strong. We're going to limit the power. We're going to make sure that the government will have the upper hand and the Knesset can overrule Supreme Court's decisions, for example, by a simple majority, which means that the classic division to the three branches is going to be totally, forgive me, messed up. If the government has all the power and the majority of one hand in the House can make decisions about everything, that's tyranny. That's not democracy. And people reacted so strongly to that. Yes, people that, took that, to the and, and I guess this dovetails with, with what you were saying, that we were getting mm -hmm. reports of, uh, say, IDF reservists and pilots saying, I'm not going to serve if, uh, if this thing that goes through. That we think today that maybe that encouraged even Hamas, all right? because yeah. the neighborhood is watching very carefully. And that it almost delivered a message of weakness. It wasn't. People don't know us well enough. They do not know the Israeli spirit and our resilience. It's a democracy. And if you don't live in a democracy, you'll never understand how democracy reacts. So you're watching democracy at its best from a dictatorship like Hamas or Hezbollah or Iran. It shows, to my opinion, it shows strength. Yeah. That's what democracy is all about. Yeah, kind the, of how what, the sausage gets made, as well, it were. In a way, yeah. In yeah. A way yeah. and you want to change the whole system it's at least have a referendum, at least speak about a special majority in the House. The way that we elect a Supreme Court judges, for example, there was a committee of nine members, right? Four of them are politicians. Two of them come from the bar of lawyers and the others are chief justices, either residing or former chief justices. The new idea was five out of nine politicians from the coalition, which means you can nominate anybody that you want without any opposition. Right. That's and not democracy, all right? So these were the main reasons. Yeah. Right? And for that reason, people said, and this was a position that I didn't like to drag the army into it. People said, listen, we are not serving a dictator. We are willing to serve our country as a democracy. If it's a dictatorship, we cannot trust a dictator to tell us to mob a house in Gaza. What's his motivation? Right. We need to know. It's a democracy. And the nation sends us and not a dictator. And that was a crisis in the army. But so, it was conditioned, Pastor. They said, if it's going to pass, then we will react. Right. They never did. Right. They said, if it's going to pass, then we're going to react. But the living in the bad neighborhood, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Hamas, especially Iran, because, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, all of these militia groups, whether it's Hamas, whether it's Fatah, whether it's Hezbollah, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's the Houthis, uh, they all seem to be taking their marching orders from Tehran, correct? Oh, they are proxies. Nobody hides that anymore, not even Iran. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so they're watching, and they mm -hmm. see this as an opportunity 
to move. And, and yet, when October 7th went down, we've also seen reports that um, mm. it, it was almost like Hamas overplayed their hand. Uh, there wasn't any coordination with the other militia groups. Even Iran seemingly was surprised by what they did. That, that would be a question. We cannot prove it. Yeah. Because when Hezbollah entered as well, they said it wasn't our operation, it was a Hamas operation. Possible. But we do know that a team from Hamas leadership visited Beirut only a month earlier. They were invited to Iran as well. So was there a coordination, yes or no, because Iran is afraid from the retaliation. And it's obvious. Same as Beirut. So if you say it wasn't our plan, all right, it was Hamas's plan, maybe, maybe they will get a point. If Israel is responding against Iran, they're going to say, well, it wasn't our plan. Yeah. Yes, we are supporting Hamas. Yeah, but but they, did not, they, they did not coordinate the plan with us. They did not ask permission, yeah. which may be or may not be the case. It's really hard to tell. But that cow almost mm -hmm. seems to have already left the barn, to use the expression. Oh, yes. Uh, there does seem to be uh, a lot of uh, indications that come spring mm -hmm. or summer, there's going to be a major set to with Hezbollah and Lebanon. Is let, that is that the way it's looking? Let or? me tell you what, what, what Iran said officially. They will not allow a situation that Hamas is defeated. Well, Hamas will be defeated. It will take some time. Then what? Iran is going to be all in? Possible. They said it loud and clear. Hezbollah said right, they're not going to stop rocketing Israel until the operation is over in Gaza. All right? It can take over a year now to clear Gaza because Gaza is going to be, I don't want to be destroyed, but in order to go after every bunker, every rocket launcher, every workshop that makes all these bombs, it will take time because everything is underground. Yeah. And if you want to minimize collateral damage, and you want to save even lives of Israeli soldiers. No army in the world ever was fighting on the ground. Gaza is the most fortified city in the world ever. 400 miles of tunnels. 400 miles of tunnels, Pastor. Yeah. I mean, you have no idea and, what's and, going And on. this isn't just like walking through a sewer from what we've seen. These are incredibly sophisticated well, places with large yes. meeting rooms yes. and things along this line. In 80% of the houses in Gaza, they found piers that go down to these, what we call the metro, all right? Which means in order to conquer a section, it's not enough to conquer the house, because you need to make sure that nobody's coming behind your back from the piers. And you find them at the baby cribs, you find them in kitchens of families, you find them everywhere, all right? Which is amazing, the number of, of piers and tunnels, we knew that there was something down there. Nobody imagined. We don't have enough explosives right, right now to blow everything up, it takes time. Mm. They spoke about flooding everything with water. But you don't understand it's conquering Gaza, conquering subterranean Gaza, and then try to just explode everything. So it's a three process that you need to do just to clear a square mile. And then there's the wild card of the possibility of rescuing mm. the hostages. Which is the most painful issue. The most painful issue. And again, I don't have any inside information. All we know is what we hear on the news, and there was a special cabinet assembled. It's a kind of a unity government that was formed specially for that operation. And uh, they say officially, all right, that the two objectives of the war is free the hostages and destroy Hamas. In that order, I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not sure. And these two, two, two objectives are conflicting. I mean, let's take it to the worst case scenario, right? That we got to the last bunker. And Yechia Sinuar, the mastermind, this murderer, is there with his staff, surrounded by 25 Israeli hostages. What are we going to do? Are we going to take him out, including all the others? 
Is it possible that some people died hostages because of our airstrikes? It's possible. We led the rescue mission, and sometimes friendly fire kills our own people. So to what an extent you'll take a chance? This is the issue that is going to divide our society. We will never recover from it. And, and I think Americans have a hard time wrapping our mind around just how passionate an issue that is. I mean, there have been circumstances where um, there have been, what, 300 uh, convicted terrorists released in order to gain the release of one kidnapped the key, no, the IDF key, soldier? The key was, well, depends. Depends when. But uh, we have a long history because it, it, it's a Jewish principle. I mean, to free our captives for ransom, it's something that goes back in Jewish history to the Middle Ages. And our enemies took advantage against us by taking some, you go to towns in Russia and Poland in the Middle Ages, all right? It was an orchestrated operation by the local prince or king. You take Jews into your prison, they will pay whatever money just to free them. Hmm. It's an important principle in the Jewish world, right? Free the captives. We pay to free one soldier, Gilad Shalit, all right? That mm -hmm. was 2007 or eight, I'm not even sure. 1,150 terrorists. Mm -hmm. Most of these are the leaders of Hamas today. And nobody complained because one life of a Jewish person is important. Now when we had the hostage exchange about two months ago, 60 days ago, well, no, 40, 50 days ago, the key was three to one. Everyone that they released, we released three. That was the key, basically. And they released only the children and young women, basically. And they said they're not going to separate families like mothers and kids, but they did. So the key was three to one. How it's going to evolve, who knows? Because right now, maybe there's some discussions about the future plan. How the keys go, because the idea is, the ideal is everybody for everybody. We have 6,000 convicted Hamas terrorists in our prisons and PLO as well. The best of the best that can be, all right? We're going to free everybody, you free everybody. The question is, how many are still alive? We don't even know that. Do they yeah. get a medication? We don't have a clue. Yeah. We have zero information about their condition. But this is just the first step. The second step is Hamas wants that Israel will free everybody will stop the war and go out of Gaza. It's not going to happen. We paid too much so far to stop it now. Yeah, and the idea that, uh, say, our Secretary of State, uh, Anthony mm -hmm. Blinken, was quoted as saying yesterday that uh, the only way this is going to be resolved is a two-state solution. Um, how does that kind of rhetoric play in Israel? I, I, everything I'm hearing on the Israeli side is, we tried the two-state solution, and this is what we got. Yes, we did. Um, again, the hope is that maybe without Hamas, if Hamas is really losing all of his governmental capabilities and his terror equipment, it's an idea. You cannot really destroy an idea. Right? You know, the Allies defeated Nazi Germany, they didn't defeat Nazism. It's still there among people. That's what we try to accomplish. Hamas can stay as a political party. They can stay as a education, whatever, though that's what delivered what we see now is education. So Hamas... What an education, though. Well, thank you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Hamas will remain, all right, they'll take care about the sewage, about housing. That's something that we'll have to live with. But they are going to lose all of their governmental powers and all of their military capabilities. That's it. That's, that's not negotiable. All right? It just has to be like that. Because they listen to the spokespeople. We're going to do it again. That would have said loud and clear. In yeah. the first opportunity, we're going to butcher more Jewish innocent civilians. Yeah. So how can you coexist with that? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure a negotiation works well when the opening bid is we want you, you to die. Thank you. 
And so. you know what? I can give the, I can give them one credit. It was always the agenda on the table. They don't hide their intention. They say it all the time, and not just in Arabic. We just we didn't listen because eh, we can. You know, there are people. They want to live. We'll find a solution if you appease them just a little more. We gave them 18,000 working permits to come and work in Israel to make a living, and they made Israeli money, which is 10 times more than Gaza money. Okay. Now, now let me just for our, our uh, viewership and our listenership's benefit. We hear a lot about Gaza and the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear about what happened uh, back in the uh, early 2000s, mm-hmm. Israel pulling out of the Gaza Strip. Could you just give us a quick overview of what in the world is Gaza and how did it get into the mess that it's in today? Yeah, well, that will take a while, so let me <laughs> try to... <laughs> the Gaza Strip was created in a way as a result of the armistice in 1949. Israel's War of Independence, we defeated the Arab armies. The Egyptian army invaded Israel. We were able to push them back. And this enclave remained that was connected to the Sinai Peninsula Egyptian territory. And we were around it with the narrow border that Gaza has with Egypt. That's what the armies is basically were taking a map, marking the front line of the Israeli forces, Egyptian forces, and that's how the Gaza was created. Mm. And since there was a haven for anybody, basically, refugees, that fled from Israeli towns, took shelter in Gaza. Now, it was under Egyptian control, but Egypt did not officially annex Gaza. It was Egyptian, which means that those refugees that were invited, people don't know, the people need to understand. 85% of the people who are called Palestinian refugees left Israel before the war even started. An invitation was extended to them by the Arab leaders back at the time. Mm -hmm. Israel is going to be a state we are going to invade to throw them into the ocean. You may be caught in the line of fire just for the time being. Clear your homes. Come and take shelter in Egypt, in Syria, in Jordan, Lebanon, even Iraq, for a short time. And once we are dealing with the Jews, you'll go back to take their homes, which are much nicer. 85% of people called refugees left the homes before the war even started. They're not coming back. They lost the war, okay? Mm-hmm. And many went down to Gaza. So Gaza became to be an area of people that did not have any civil rights, that did not have a nationality. The Egyptians won't even allow them to travel. You could not leave the Gaza area. People were in a lack of education, no jobs, absolutely nothing. And just to emphasize this point, this isn't administered by Israel. No, Egypt. This isn't Israel oppressing this group of people in the Gaza Strip. No, this is being administrated by Egypt. Exactly. So speaking about the part, people accuse of being the apartheid state. You want to see apartheid? You go to the Gaza under Egypt. You go to Lebanon and see this every day. Palestinians in Lebanon are living in their camps. They're not supposed to leave the camp. They don't have citizenship of Lebanon. They're treated like dogs. That's apartheid. Jordan was the only country that was willing to accept the Palestinians, give them citizenship. So today, most of the Jordanians are basically former Palestinians, but not in Egypt and not in Lebanon and not in Iraq and not in Kuwait. These people are citizens of nothing. They don't participate in politics. They don't participate in elections. They have zero rights. That's apartheid, not in Israel. Israeli Arabs are Israelis, so, just like anybody else. So this, uh, this front line, if you will, between Egypt and Israel gets basically... Mm. Uh, marked out as the Gaza Strip. That's the Gaza Strip. And, and they had it until and, 1967. Yeah. And then the Six-Day War, yeah. Israel took it from the Egyptians. 
We had it until 1978 when we started a peace process vis-a-vis -vis the Egyptians. Right? 77, it started in November 19. President Sadat came to visit Israel. He was launching the peace process. We signed the peace agreement in 26th of March 1979. Israel pulled out from Sinai Peninsula. And we told the Egyptians, listen, Gaza was yours. Take it back. And Sadat very cleverly said, no, 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 we don't want Gaza. You stick with Gaza. Mm. So we have Gaza. <laughs> He's a smart until, man, I guess. Yeah. Very smart yeah. man. And he knew exactly why he says it. Until 2005, Gaza was in Israel's control, not annexed to Israel. It was in Israel's hands. We built some communities in the Gaza Strip. Israelis lived in a few blocks in the Gaza Strip. And then in 1993, we started the Oslo Accord, the peace process with the Palestinians, according to which we're supposed to clear the Palestinian cities and give it to the Palestinian Authority. Jericho, Gaza, Han Yunus, Shechem, Jenin, I'm mentioning the cities in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. And we left a small enclave of Israeli 18 communities and about 8,000 people lived there. That was, now Gaza is in the hands of the Palestinians. The PA was officially founded July 1st, 1994. It was times of prosperity. There's so much hope it's going to work. They had the new, brand new airport, the Yasser Arafat airport, they had a new harbor. They built hotels. It looks five, like... Five-star hotels. Well, yeah. you know, yeah. everybody said, well, hallelujah, it's really yeah. working. Yeah. So finally, people reason it's going to work. And then in April, the first rocket was fired at Tanus Deot from Gaza in April of... When was it? 2001. We understood just a minute now, something's not working here. So in 2005, under Ariel Sharon, a very hardliner, who said, okay... The world thinks that if you are going to appease them just a little more, it will lead to peace. Let's give it a, a try. And we pulled out from Gaza. Since September 11th, interesting, huh? 2005, mm -hmm. there are no Israelis in the Gaza Strip. Zero. No, not even one. Nobody's there. The problem was, it was not through negotiation with the PA. It was a unilateral decision made by Israel. You want us to appease the Palestinians, see what happens? We are going to leave. And now we want to see how they deliver. So we got more rockets and more terror. And we left behind beautiful greenhouses and lots of beautiful land and infrastructure. It was destroyed. And it's still a PLO, not even Hamas yet. It was the PLO. Mm -hmm. We pulled out, you know, destroyed synagogues so they wouldn't be desecrated. We had to dig out graves and rebury people in Israel mm -hmm. because their tombs will be violated. It was a clever thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's not easy in the Jewish world. You do not dig people out and rebury them. It's the last thing that you want to do. But we understood the problem that may have happened. And, you know, synagogues without the Torah scroll inside, it's just a building. So they had to go to a whole, how you call it, desecration, mm -hmm. opposite of consecration, right. to desecrate a synagogue just by taking out the Torah scrolls, knowing that they're going to be violated and destroyed. Indeed, they were. So, so, so mm -hmm. Israel pulls out. Uh, unilaterally. Yes. Said, basically, you guys want independence. You want a Palestinian state? Show us how you do it. Have at it. Uh, immediately, from what I understand, there was a civil war between Hamas yeah. and Fatah. Well, it started with and, elections. And they had elections because the UN is always behind the scenes. The, the UN really wants to facilitate some kind of an agreement. And President Bush said in June 2002 that the US was always for the roadmap for peace, a two-state solution. It wasn't until he said it so clearly. But it, that's a plan. It's going to be the roadmap for peace is going to lead to two states. One for the Jews, one for the Arabs. We have the Jewish state, all right? By the way, this is important. The Palestinian leadership refused, refused to recognize Israel as the homeland for the Jewish people. 
It's a state like any other state. But they want us to give full recognition to the future Palestine as the holy for the Palestinians. That's, that's what, and it's not semantics. This is, these are important things that many people ignore because it doesn't translate well, because who cares about those? These details are important. Right. And Mahmoud Abbas said, in the future Palestine, not a single Jew is going to be permitted to live. Yeah, the, from the river to the sea, Thank Palestine you. will be well, free. Something like that. That is the slogan <laughs> that's being chanted on what? college campuses here in the United States. That's basically you ask them, though, which, you ask them what river, and they, they have no idea. They don't have but, they don't know. And free of what? Jews, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. Isn't that, isn't that a call for genocide? Yeah. So it's not about two countries living peacefully. Anyhow, so we pulled out, and what we got in return was more terror, and they had elections. And Ms. Condoleezza Rice was the Secretary of State. And Israel advised very strongly that Hamas should not be able to run. You know, they are outlawed in Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas is Muslim Brotherhood of Palestine, all right? It's, it's illegal to be a member in Egypt. They simply outlawed them, so it's not even an issue in the Egyptian part. And she said, listen, it's a democracy. We believe that people understand democracy. They will vote for the best for them. All right, this is always a problem, a big misunderstanding. Yeah. And guess, guess who won the elections? It was the only time that Arabs, I kid you not, had free elections. The whole world came to watch that the process is indeed as, as free and fair as possible. All right, and 75% of the vote went to Hamas and the Salafists and the Muslim Brotherhood, and people know what they're voting for. People know what they're voting for. So the PLO lost power. They refused to relinquish power, which led to civil war. So June 2007, after PLO officials were thrown from the skyscrapers in Gaza down to their death by Hamas, even today you have hundreds of Palestinians in the West Bank walking around in wheelchairs because they had a bullet in the kneecap by the brothers in Gaza. So now we have two entities. So how many states are we going to have? A three-state solution? Gaza is functioning almost like a state under Hamas. The West Bank is 41% territory is PLO. And these who don't like each other. So what kind of a two-state solution? Who represents the Palestinians in the negotiation table? Nobody. Hamas says that we are not answering to the PLO. The PLO says these are our enemies. So when you want to talk to the Palestinians, who represents them? So it's, a, it's almost like the conflict between Sunni and Shiite Muslims. Well, that's they, the, they probably the despise line. each other even more than they do the Jews. Yeah. So yeah. Iran said very clearly the first target is Sunni Islam and then the Western Israel. You want to consolidate all the Muslims under one caliph, they all aspire to put the caliphate, the Shiites for the Mahdi, which is not exactly the same. Yeah. But uh, so there's not much cooperation among the Muslims as well. But the idea is that, and I have to say that Israel was supporting that kind of divide and conquer that maybe wasn't the most clever policy. But it gave okay, us an Okay, now excuse. wait a minute. Okay. You just said something really significant here. Okay. Israel was supporting one of these factions, I, from what I understand, you're saying Israel was supporting Hamas versus the, the, the Fatah, the PLO, correct? Let, let me tell you what was the official policy of Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's in power for 16 consecutive years now, from 2009. And his idea was basically the way that he viewed the future of the Middle East was the following. Since Israel, I don't want to say doesn't want to to go to a peace process. We do want to try to end it peacefully. The question is, are we willing to pay for that? Because the price that we will pay is to have a Palestinian state, all right? And therefore, the idea was, if we can create a situation in which 
We undermine the position of the PLO by supporting Hamas. They will be constantly in some kind of a struggle that will give us the justification to say nobody represents the Palestinians. Before they resolve their problems and come as one to the table, we're not going to talk to anybody. And you can only do that if you're supporting one group against the other. All right? Qatar. Qatar is the villain in the whole story, okay? Was sending money, giving money every month, $30 million, just to support the officials in Gaza. All right? And that was done without consent. For a few months, we used to carry money. In briefcases, a Qatari carrier going through Israel, crossing the border, they would not do that without consent. So the idea was we want to make Hamas stronger than they usually are. Not officially, we're not talking to them. Because we want to make sure that the PLO is not controlling Gaza as well. So that's given us a justification. You want us to talk to the Palestinian two-state solution? Who represents the Palestinians? It seems like they do a good enough job themselves of not getting along without that kind of bribery. But Yes, but I have to say that that was, that was the official policy, and you had it from cabinet ministers. I did not remember Mr. Netanyahu, but others, Hamas is an asset. The PLO is a liability, and more than once. So that was the clever politics behind. And then the whole thing blew up. Thank you. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't something that we are really shocked by. We knew it has a potential. We just did, we did underestimate the capability, not the motivation. We did not believe that they will be able to execute such a wide-scale right, attack, such a short time, that was very, too successful from their part. They, they did not imagine that either. The plan was to try to seize one community, maybe a small army base, take back home two, three, five hostages, and start negotiating. They were shocked how easy it was for them. They did a good job in, in basically deceiving us. So, they did. so and, and this is always the, 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 the elephant in the living room question. How were they able to do this when you've got uh, Mossad, you've got Sheen Bet, you've got the CIA, you've got MI6, uh, all of these uh, uh, yeah. intelligence agencies that seemingly would have a vested interest in knowing what was going on, all caught flat-footed. How does that happen? Well, the concept, which is the magic word, the concept. <clears throat> we were thinking, in a Western terms, right, in a rational way, as long as they have something to lose, they will never open such an attack that will lead to their demise. And what do they have to lose? Well, basically, money and power, we're going to give them permits to come and work in Israel. Living conditions are going to improve. They have something to lose because Hamas really wants to govern the people to be recognized as a legitimate government. Nonsense. They don't care about that. They have one goal only, the destruction of Israel. And it's right there in their charter. Well, without, yeah, at least two of yeah. the, I'm going to mention it later on. You go and read paragraph 13 and, and 18 about what exactly they want to do. And once again, they say it loud and clear that they're not going to stop. They'll try again and again and again. And the problem is, which is kind of, you know, is this bit of smile on my face, that those people that had working permits to come and work, these were the spies that led the attack. We fed them. Right. And they beat the hand that fed them and their families. They led the attack on October 7th. They have names of people that knew exactly who to look for. Because if you're employed in the kibbutz, right on the line over there, you know the people of the while, you know the grocery uh, keeper, you know the head of the 
first responders, whatever, and you go inside with pictures looking for these people. And for the sake of those listening, the kibbutz is not a military base. That's oh, a no. civilian center. It's a beautiful community, usually totally kind of a communal community. And these were the main the main. It's targets. a farm, for lack of a better term. Well, yeah. that was the beginning yeah. of it. Today, yeah. they do have industry and tourism, but yeah. it started as a farming communal community. Yes, and these are beautiful, you know, beautiful green, peaceful places. And the other tragedy is, is that these people that lived in these communities were the people that really want to live in coexistence with the Gazans on the other side. They knew them, they knew the families, they used to send them money. Israel provides medical treatment to anybody in Gaza has a problem, they can come to our hospitals. But they can only come to the border, nobody is driving them over there. These people, these kibbutzes, used to go and drive them to the hospital in Beersheba and drive them back. These are the hostages. They took some hostages in Gaza now, the people that saved the families' lives. Now, that's what we are dealing with. Now, we've got a pretty good, uh, mm-hmm. I, I would, would use the word good advisedly, but this has been our perspective on all of this, is that one of the reasons that people got caught so flat-footed is that here in the West, we honestly don't believe that people are really motivated by religious sensibilities. We believe they're motivated by secular concerns. They want to uh, they want to earn a living. They want to have a home. They want to, their children to be educated, just like we do. That but the they don't operate just like we Not do. Not at all. You see, our problem is, and this is this is part of the tragedy that we are projecting our image and our way of thinking and our principles on other people, not understanding that other people have a different agenda, a different mindset, a different mo. Well, I it, mean, and it, again, it's, it, it's the ultimate. The, the the whole collapse of uh, the the so-called Arab Spring, if yeah. if we give them the right to vote democratically, and we had pictures of them on you know major magazines and the news holding up their hands saying that they voted that and, would and be all a of this stuff. One-time election, just like the Palestinians, yeah. they didn't have any elections since 2007. Yeah, where should they? They did. Yeah. Well, they know all too well. If they have elections in the West Bank, Hamas will win. Yeah, and that's a totally different ballgame. So we speak about what really surprised us. So, uh, I mean, just before you, you, you roll on with that, so it seems like it's flip-flopped. Uh, there was this idea that we have to build up Hamas in order to keep the PLO in check. Well, to build now it, to it a sounds certain like, level. Now it sounds like the idea is, boy, we better get in there and support Fatah or Hamas is going to take over. Well, that's where Israeli politics <laughs> come to play a role. I mean, am I, re- am I following this correctly? You're absolutely right. Because yeah. the question is, what will happen in Gaza after the war is over? There has to be some kind of a future, some kind of a plan. And Prime Minister Netanyahu refuses to say clearly because he will lose his coalition. The members of the coalition that made this government refuse to even think about the PLO taking over the Gaza area. If he does say it loud and clear, if he dares to mention the two-state solution, as he did, before this government was formed, he doesn't have a government. Mm-hmm. Members of the coalition today, and we do have some very right-winged, I'm not even sure how to translate that to, to American to, to understand, uh, they are not willing to even consider any kind of negotiations. And uh, under this government, under this structure, we have a very hard time to move forward to any direction, except for one, and that's a consensus. Hamas will cease to exist. And if possible, Hezbollah in Lebanon as well. We don't have a choice. Mm. It's a necessity. We don't have a choice. Mm. We'll never live again in the, in the future that you have bloodthirsty people on your border. Any country in the world is willing to do that? Just show me one country in the world 
who is willing to have not a hostile, not theoretically. It was proven how savage these people are. And who will take such a chance? We evacuated from the northern front that we had, the border, 70,000 civilians because Hezbollah is hitting the home directly by using anti-tank rockets. And we're still exchanging fires, no maneuvers. This will have to stop. And we are strong enough to do that. But right now, the U.S. asks us to show some restraint, and it's going to be a global conflict. It is a global conflict from the Houthis in Yemen, yeah. and the Turks are making some moves in Iran. Well, and Iran just fired into Pakistan two well, days ago. Yeah, that, that was... They flexed the muscles. Yeah. Why not? And, it, and Pakistan, for those of you watching at home, is a nuclear power. It is indeed, yeah. Now, why one day, if the world is not responding, if the world shows weakness, European countries... Even the U.S. under President Biden, and I have to say, great supporter of Israel. I only have good things to say, and I understand the American controversy. From Israel's perspective, America looks like 100% behind Israel, but we do have a lot of financial aid and support. But the thing is that the U.S. is demanding something from us that it cannot deliver. No army can do that. Minimize collateral damage. Don't clear neighborhoods from civilians. It doesn't look right, but try not to hit them while you go after Hamas. Keep sending food and medications, all right, and fuel inside, and finish it as quickly as possible. How can anybody do that? Well, and, and you <laughs> use the word keep, and this is another thing that I think people don't understand about this conflict. Israel was supplying the Gaza Strip with electricity and water, correct? We still do today. We did, yeah. Everything that Gaza has, they have it from Israel. So this blockade, and I'm telling you, I don't have it with me right now, but in the presentation, right later on today, two uh, Egyptian journalists went into Gaza in 2010. And they went to check things because the story was that the blockade of Israel is so brutal, people starve to death, and they are shocked to see that Gaza lacks absolutely nothing. They say that living in Egypt is much tougher than living in Gaza. They have everything. The markets are full of people, new holiday villages. People are doing well altogether, much better than Egypt. So everything that Gaza had came from Israel. Now you give me another example in world history. The two people were at war. And one is supplying the enemy with everything they knowing that Hamas is stealing the food from the common people in Gaza. But how can that be my problem? The world wants me to send into Gaza 200, ship, uh, 200 trucks every day filled with all the goodies of the planet. I can let them cross the border. What happens after that is not my responsibility. The UN doesn't control the tumor. As they crossed, it was on TV. Hamas people seize those, and Hamas is well fed. And even shoot some of their own citizens who Easy. try to get some stuff off but the of truck. Course, but of no. course, who cares about the people? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, this so is something that the Western world will never understand. So, oh, and that's the real key. As an Israeli citizen, what would you expect the average non-Israeli to know about the IDF and Hamas and the efforts going on there? And what would you like the world to be mm -hmm. able to know? Just not as common knowledge, but what would be the ideal as far as well, us understanding the situation? It is something that will be very hard to me to express, because unless you experience that, you will not relate to that. And I cannot give you an example, it's like, because it's like nothing. Let me, let me just give you a short example, right? Nazi Germany. And, and we have to make that, that to, to compare the two. For the first years of the Second World War, when the Wehrmacht, right, was responsible to gather Jews in cities and towns in Poland and Russia and the Ukraine, 
they dug those pits and they let people to the pits and shot the bullets in the head and threw them out to the pit. And the German commanders were taking the soldiers every night and forced them, it was an order, to get drunk. To get drunk because they knew they'd do something wrong. In the case of Hamas, they were so happy to do that. You see that on the faces. It was more the jubilee. We had this phone call of a Hamas member calling his, his father at home. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And the father in tears, you are such a brave man, son. Keep killing. I wish I could be with you. Amazing. All families were gone. All families were gone. And, and the raping and the beheading. And who bakes babies in an oven? You tell me what kind of a satanic mindset that's coming from. And the, the, where I think people get confused here is they say, well, they've been oppressed for so long. You put a, you know, a boiling pot on a stove with a heavy mm -hmm. lid. Sooner or later, it's going to blow. And that's what's going to happen. They were just oppressed so long, they lost sight of their okay. humanity. But Well, so phase of retaliation. Yeah. What can I say? It wasn't to fight for freeing anything. They don't want to live side by side to anybody. And make no mistake, Pastor, we just hold the front line. The whole world is part of it. The whole, it's a global conflict indeed. Well, the, the Houthi rebels, for their, example, their famous flag. For example. You know, death to Israel, death to America. Of you course. know, and, and they've got their, their checklist right there on their flag. Let me say something under my head as an historian, okay? When history will be written in about a century from now, and historians are going to view the first half of the 20th century, it's an opinion, all right? They will say that it was a war of religions, that one party did not understand that it is a war of religion. It was almost too late. The trigger was 9-11. Battle number one was defeating ISIS. Number two was defeating Hamas. But not Hamas, just that limited militia over there. The whole ideology behind it will not be defeated. But people are taking action in behalf of that ideology. That will be around to, it's the beginning of it. And because the whole neighborhood is watching, if we do not have a decisive victory, we'll have a major problem in the near future. But not just Israel, the whole Western world. So by a decisive victory, what does a decisive victory look like in your opinion in Gaza? Well, that the masterminds of terror are dead, that everybody that we know of that participated... The ones living in the high-rises in Gutter, too? Uh, well, they're on the list as well, and it's not my opinion. The Israeli, uh, I guess the equivalent of the FBI, the, the Shabak said very clearly, Every Palestinian mother should know. If her son participated in the October 7 massacre, she can start mourning, will find them, will kill them. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it may be a brutal message. We don't have a choice. These people deserve one thing, and that's to die. And they seemingly understand one thing, because the more weakness is shown, the more provocation basically happens. Correct. I agree. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that the the dream to live in peace side by side is going to ever happen. You know what? Don't like me. You need to fear the way that I am capable of retaliating. And it took us a long time. It was very minor at first. We said, you know what? We can we can reason somehow, and we're going to talk peace to each other because these are people. They have children that they want, they want to give them the best life possible. Nonsense. It's out of the agenda. The agenda is one to kill all the Jews and Christians, read the charter, yep. and to bring Israel to its total destruction. That's not going to happen. The Friday people and then the Sunday people, as they say. Yeah. Uh, so the choices are limited. The problem is, why did we wait such a long time? The writing was on the wall. 
you mentioned something earlier that I just missed and I did not answer. The information was there. It was all there. We have, you know, military is deployed along the border. They have very good intelligence. They knew exactly what was going on. But the concept was still, they weren't there. They will not dare to do that. And they're not capable. They want to. They're not capable. That was the big mistake. You see the information. The question is, you know, two people can see the same data. And each one comes to a different conclusion. Our conclusion was the wrong one. For 24 hours, Pastor, everything went wrong. 100% failure. Nothing worked for the first 24 hours. And this is rare. And for Israel, devastating. Now, we are not in the danger of, of, of you know, big collapse or whatever. But the humiliation, the guilt, the army personnel admitted we failed. And we are going to resign after the war is over. We didn't hear that from the politicians. None of them. Not from the politicians. Somebody is responsible. He has a name. He has a title. Somebody has to pay the price. So we'll see. We'll have elections maybe after the war will be over. I have no idea how this is going to evolve. But this no war idea. doesn't really have a foreseeable termination point, does it, time-wise? Well, it will, it, be be a, years. it will be a different intensity. I think that the massive, intense, you know, airstrikes, etc., maybe are over. And it's going to be more, more targeted ground operations to go after good intelligence to go to certain places while searching every rocket launcher, every workshop to try to clear the tunnels will take time. But right now we want to save lives on both sides. And you have to be very focused on what you do. And the wild card, obviously, of the hostages. That's, that's always been there. That will be always there. Is it going to stop us from? Question is, and I have no, no way to answer that. If we know that we are going to take a very essential target that we may have some hostages, are we going to operate yes or no? I have no idea. I hate to be in decision makers' place to make those ideas. These people have to make some very, very tough decisions. So spring's coming. Um, Yoav Gallant and others have uh, made the statement that uh, we have to wait for the weather to launch a northern campaign into uh, Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Do you see that happening? Well, spring, it's kind of the two spring, is too, spring is too far away. The decision will have to be made in the next couple of weeks. Will have to be made. I mean, once again, if it, the plan is, we still try diplomacy. All right. The president has an envoy. He's going to the Middle East, Amos Hochstein, and they try to to implement basically a UN resolution, 1701, that was made in 2006. That was brought the war back to an end. And by this one, the special forces of Hezbollah will be deployed north of the river Litani, about 20, 22 kilometers, 15 miles away from the northern borders, which means they cannot take it by surprise. They won't do it. They won't do it. They've never done it. Exactly. It will have to be done. We will not live in a condition that whenever you want to open fire, you're going to kill an Israeli. This is over. Gloves off. Now, this is over. And as a veteran of the last uh, Donnybrook with Lebanon, uh, where it seemed like there was so much you know, invested with blood and, and treasure and, and everything like that to accomplish next to nothing. Are you optimistic that this time they're going to be serious? Or Well, it's not really up to them. If we will be serious, we can do it. Easy. And I think that the world will support us in doing that as well. It's just a matter of making a decision and stand behind it. We do have a 100% consensus among the people of the country 
It will take as long as it will take. We have to accomplish these two objectives. And when that happens, what is your take on uh, Iran's response? Do they start throwing the kitchen sink at Israel? Or? I, have, I have no idea. I think that Iran is, uh, is in a position that they will have to make some decisions as well. But they have a lot to lose. If the regime collapses, and they fear for the regime, if the whole world is coming together, I think that their chances are not that big. And we're coming to that point. People begin to understand this is not a joke. This is not happening 10,000 miles away. If you have a rocket you can launch at New York City from Tehran, you're in problem. You do have a major problem. Yeah, yeah. Add North Korea to that and add some other elements, and it is indeed a global issue. Well, Ronnie, we have really appreciated your time here on the broadcast. It's gone by Thank you. way too quickly. <laughs> um, Sean, if people want to watch this again, how can they do that? Well, again, if you're joining us on YouTube, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is our website. You can join us on Facebook. You can email us, and we'll be happy to send you links. But note that all those will be available as long as this website's willing to host us. And again, Ronnie, we're honored to host you as well. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And thank you for inviting me, at least to give people in this country maybe some other perspectives. Yeah, that's why we've called the uh, conference we've invited you to speak at over the weekend, Understanding Israel, because the more you understand what's going on there, the more we as believers in Christ need to be standing with Israel more than ever before. Thank, Thank you. you again. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.